This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. I was sitting down this morning to write the forecast for February 23rd to March 1st of 2022, and I really felt into a desire to focus more intently on this stellium that is occurring that I've had my eye on for a couple of months. And it is this stellium in Capricorn between the asteroid goddess Vesta, Venus and Mars and Pluto all in Capricorn. And during this stellium this week, they also sextile Neptune and Eros in Pisces. And to talk about this stellium, I felt like it would be better to get on here and just record um, as opposed to writing out my thoughts. So I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't um, outlined this. This is going to be more of a transmission and a exploration So to start with, we know Venus and Mars, most likely. Venus, goddess of love, relates to pleasure, beauty, aesthetic, art. Mars, um, god of war, relates to our will, our energy, our vitality, um, that you know, raw energy within us that is rage or arousal and our relationship with that kind of fire, like how we wield it. Venus relates to magnetism and attraction. And then Pluto is this god of the underworld. Pluto relates to the unconscious or the subconscious drives. And these things can be made conscious. That's the the act of shadow work. And the Venus-Pluto-Mars field has this energy to it of really wanting to outdo ourselves in terms of our potency, our artistic capacity. There's um, maybe some degree of angst in the field because Pluto relates to our awareness of what we are not and what we would like to be, you know, the limitation of our being And it creates a attraction field where we become attracted to symbols of power, that which opens us up to more that we could be through the bond, right? And so this is the phenomenon of being attracted to a person, to a teaching, to an experience. When we have desires, desires are this alchemical process by which we become more than what we are and by which we remember who we are at a deep level. And within this, there is so much power dynamic that unfolds as well as, you know, an inquiry into what's our relationship with desire because we can try to grab at and consume and have and take what we want. Um, And there is a inherent disempowerment and a potential for violence within that. It's different than being in right relationship with Eros, in right relationship with our desire and able to form these kind of mutually enhancing relationships where there is a exchange The Venus, Pluto, Mars, there is that sense in the field, perhaps, of feeling this desire, feeling this allurement to having that experience of passion in our lives and feeling like we are maybe the source of that or we have access to those states of being. Vesta, who you may or may not be familiar with, is a goddess that relates to sacred space, to the temple, to Tantra. 
Vesta has two different versions of her myth. In the patriarchal version of the myth, she is a um, temple priestess who has taken a 30-year vow of celibacy, and she's tasked to keep these temple fires always lit. She's punished severely if she breaks that vow of celibacy. In the myths before that, she was, you know, I used to say like a sacred sex worker, but the more that I have come to learn about it and reflect about it, she was a woman. And inherently in that womanness, she was a portal to the divine. So the kind of um, label of like what she's doing, you know, being a sex worker and whatnot is irrelevant in some sense. There is already a paradigm that the body is a portal to the divine. And there's this deeper memory of that type of reverent tantric sexuality than the layer where she kind of in patriarchal times becomes this um, celibate, almost more nun-like figure. Though she may still be having a divine and tantric experience with the fire, it's sublimated, right? And so... In the modern experience of Vesta, there's kind of this back and forth between celibacy and um, the word perhaps is promiscuity and I'm not saying that from a place of value judgment. It's like a pendulum of the extremes of like being alone and being celibate or then having all this desire and really wanting to act it out. And part of the celibacy of this archetype can be informed by having these, you know, desires for like this really transformative, magical sexual experience that feels less accessible in our highly not erotic world, right? Like there's sex everywhere. There's like pornography, there's sex and like advertising and whatnot, but the true erotic is something that is a little bit more like rarefied knowledge, right? Like studying Tantra or studying breathwork practices or studying like these deeper mysteries that aren't really common ethos, common knowledge of the day, right? So one who is kind of initiating themselves or participating in initiations around deeper Tantric education may also be finding that they're not necessarily just going to go out and meet someone immediately who holds that same frequency. And there can be that sense of this is so rare, you know, it's so rare to find this. It's so, um, so unusual. And I think that actually like Vesta in her power, she's this priestess that carries her magic wherever she goes. So she's been maintaining a frequency. She's been maintaining her ritual practice. She has a devotional practice. She has these tantric practices, you know, whether we're talking about Vesta in a sexual context or not, if this is like a non-sexual version of it, I mean, she could be doing candle magic or having like um, a relationship with daily prayer and intention setting. And there's something just about instead of living life in a um, mundane kind of way or following the tracks of the templates of social conventions and the kind of matrix that already exists, she's tapping into a more rare energy. So that sense of if we bring back her mythos of being the fire tender, she's keeping that fire lit it takes energy to keep that fire lit right so replace the fire with a with a frequency like a sense of what are you devoted to that you stoke the fire of it and that you maintain it and so in her power vesta carries her magic wherever she goes because she's maintained this ritual practice and this devotional practice it's in her body it is part of her. She's anchored that frequency in. Not to say she doesn't have to keep revisiting it to keep it from getting rusty, but she's in the magic and she is a source of the experience. 
And so instead of looking out and kind of scanning the environment for who has the magic, who has the Eros that I'm seeking, she is already the embodiment of it. And so like a fire, people are attracted to her warmth. People are attracted to her brilliance. There is a natural magnetism. And then once she's in that space where she is drawing people to her, there is also that energy of moths coming to the flame, right? People knowing that she has something and wanting to be part of it. So if we come back to this Mars, Venus, Pluto, and that sense of wanting to become so much more than what we are, being allured and magnetized to that which promises that experience. And then you have Vesta holding this frequency. There's a few different ways we can interpret this. One, we could be so kind of lit up and impassioned right now to really cultivate something within ourselves so that instead of being in the disempowered position of always needing to seek it from the external, we feel we have it anchored in our own being. Right. We might also be dealing with the kind of all of these signs are in Capricorn, the boundaries that come up. So Vesta is very importantly a gatekeeper. She's devoted to a frequency and only those who respect and honor the frequency can enter the temple. I want to read a few quotes about fire. And this is from a book, Psychoanalysis of Fire by Bachelard. He says, fire and heat provide modes of explanation in the most varied domains because they have been for us the occasion of unforgettable memories for simple and decisive personal experiences. Fire is thus a privileged phenomenon which can explain anything. If all that changes slowly may be explained by life, all that changes quickly is explained by fire. Fire is the ultra-living element. It is the intimate and it is universal. It lives in our heart. It lives in the sky. It rises from the depths of substance and offers itself with the warmth of love. Or it can go back down into the substance and hide there, latent and pent up like hate and vengeance. Among all phenomena, it really is the only one to which there can be so definitely attributed the opposing values of good and evil. It shines in paradise. It burns in hell. It is gentleness and torture. It is cookery and it is apocalypse. It is a pleasure for the good child sitting prudently by the hearth, yet it punishes any disobedience within the child that wishes to play too close to the flames. It is well-being and it is respect. It is a tutelary and a terrible divinity, both good and bad. It can contradict itself. Thus, it is one of the principles of universal explanation. I wanted to bring this in because... Vesta psychologically relates to this Madonna whore kind of complex that back and forth between, you know, this sacred sexual right kind of energy. And by right, I mean, R-I-T-E. Um, and being a nun or being this person who's taken a vow of celibacy and then the back and forth between, um, you know, one who's kind of pulled between those archetypes of being the good girl, and I'm using feminine, you know, language here, and the, you know, harlot kind of energy. And where is that sense that one cannot be all of these things? And the polarity creates some kind of tension within the being. What I find interesting about this quote as well is the sense that if all that changes slowly may be explained by life, all that changes quickly is explained by fire. And something that I have learned from embodiment teachers, Stefana Serafina and Carla Palomino, is this idea that when we create heat in the system, 
So through movement, through kind of tapping into our inner eros, that it creates some heat in the body, heat in our systems, and we can transform because of that. So that when we are doing our ordinary day-to-day activities, we are living. It is life, right? But when we get into a place of ceremony or a place of um, ecstasy or a place of catharsis, a place of greater intensity or heat or friction within ourselves, that becomes the space for transformation. So one way that we tend to crave this is through union with another. And the friction of that experience And yet there's a deeper need, right? For this sense of having a relationship internally, Vesta, Venus here, um, with that frequency, with that passion. Another idea that I want to bring in is the idea of carpe noctum, which is the, you know, a relative to carpe diem, seize the day. This is seize the night. And I came across this in a guidebook, a tarot guidebook for the Spirit Keepers Tarot by Benabel Wen. And it was within the description for the two of orbs, two of pentacles. And I'll read it out. It is your past suffering that directly sires the future opportunity to come. Work harder and double down. Shoulder more commitments and steer your ship through the rough tides. Carpe noctum. Work at your dreams late into the night, harder than everybody else, and the gods will reward you for your dedication. You now possess unbound potential for harmonizing disparate interests and balancing them into a cohesive life path, career, or venture. I loved this idea of carpe noctum. And this two of, I've been having an experience with the two of orbs the last week and the way that I've connected it to my natal chart, the first decan of Capricorn, um, where my North node is. And I was thinking about the way that there has been such a contested narrative around hard work, right? Which is a Capricorn theme. We have, you know, I can think back to like some kind of uh, like a version of Christianity where, you know, our life's work while we are living is to become worthy of heaven. Right. And that hard work is the gateway to purifying the soul. Um, Then there is the kind of um, economic versions of hard work, the the quality of, you know, having to work to survive, um, any idea of the marketplace being competitive. And then there's been a whole kind of recent movement toward rest, radical rest, right? And a critique of hard work, a critique of the value of it, a critique of being exhausted as some kind of status symbol, And so I've been tracking that we struggle with the idea of how much we want to work. Some people do work way too much in a way that drains them of pleasure in their bodies and they're in a kind of survival trauma state overworking. Some people feel chronically not worthy They have some kind of self-worth complex and they work for their self-worth. And so they have a kind of um, distorted relationship to the work in their life. Other people work hard at something that isn't their dream, right? They are expending their life force in a way that feels disempowering to them because they are um, in a position where they have to do that. They feel like they have to do that. They haven't found the freedom from that. I have seen people 
integrate and kind of take in this concept of, you know, work is not a status symbol anymore. Rest is really important. And there has been an oversaturation, I think, in some people's systems, and I've felt it in mine, of that kind of concept. It's interesting because we've been having this really big conversation about rest and the importance of it. There's this way that we go back and forth between whether our work is worthy or whether our work is somehow twisted. And there is a kind of ecstasy like Vesta, in addition to being you know, this temple priestess who is staying up late into the night, they're taking shifts, these temple priestesses to watch the fire. Um, Vesta relates to mundane, not mundane, but like a house witchery and kind of cleaning the home, creating a frequency in the home space. So when you walk in, you, you know, smell these delicious scents of food that has been cooked or incense or baked goods. There's a warm fire. There's a energy that just envelops you, right? Or you're at like a outdoor gathering and the fire just draws you. It doesn't have to be a domestic image. No, I'm trying to find my way back to what I was saying. We're in a moment, I feel like, where there's a lot of messaging that, you know, take it easy on yourself. You don't need to work hard. Rest. And perhaps that's just what I'm tuned into because I know if I went into more of like a fitness world news feed or something like that, they would be like, don't just wish for your dream body, work for it. You know, same in some types of business, you know, a lot of the business ethos that I work with is um, related to the body. It's like related to pleasure. It's not about driving ourselves into the ground and overextending. So I too, for a couple years, have been resting. I used to get up early to do yoga and then, um, you know, or I got up early to be a nanny at certain times in my life. And since 2020, I've been sleeping in since I um, stopped my yoga practice. That was an early morning yoga practice. I've been sleeping in and it's felt amazing. I have energy throughout the day. But I also remember the romance of getting up early, um, going to my nannying job, coming home by, you know, eight or nine in the morning, probably nine, and then getting to work on my novel and keeping my room and like my home clean and studying astrology and journaling, um, just being really constantly engaged, right? Like I was also working on cultivating my frequency terms of my, you know, embodiment of the law of attraction teachings and understanding like my vibrational reality, I was very devoted to cultivating my energy. It didn't mean that I actively repressed or didn't approve of negative emotions or something like that, but I showed up for them and I would confront them and alchemize them instead of just letting them stay stuck and stagnant. And so I felt this heat in my system, this like daily erotic energy of working toward my dreams unceasingly, right? And then also having these moments of just play or going out to the woods or something like that. So it was a very present way of being. And when I came back to this idea of carpe noctum, seize the night, work hard, double down, work harder than everybody else. I don't care for the competition element of that. That's not really what matters to me. But the sense that, you know, you are allowed to cultivate a big fire within you and have multiple interests and do, you know, the whole like however many hour work day the standard one or the one that we've imagined, they're all just constructs, right? Like, how do you want to live? What, cons like what 
like comes over us when we care so much about a venture or a goal that we're willing to stay up late in the candlelight working on it after we've already had a full day. It could be related to our career. It could be a dance that we're learning and practicing. It could be a creative writing practice. It could be art making. But it challenges this sense of, I don't have the energy or I don't want to work hard or I just want to rest or I don't want to do anything to, I'm going to come fully alive in all of my pursuits. This is an earth stellium. It's a Capricorn stellium. There is something here about working towards something and working towards something that's not just, you know, it could be a practical, pragmatic goal of like, making a certain income goal, getting your business off the ground. Getting a business off the ground takes a lot of startup energy. It's very cardinal. It's very Capricorn. There's a process sometimes for years of working harder than the ego wants to, right? And then getting to a place where parts of the business begin to run themselves or instead of having to always generate interest or bring in clients, the structure of your business, the word of mouth starts doing that work for you. And you're relaxing in the stream of energy trickling in toward the fire that you've cultivated. But there is the startup process, just like we start a fire and that is perhaps more difficult than keeping the fire going. But there's a sense with the Venus, Mars, Pluto, Vesta, and then sextile Neptune that we're not just working on something in a way that feels neutral or kind of like purely practical. We're working on something that speaks to our deepest fascination and desire, right? So it could show up as certain concrete goals, but what about the layer beneath it? What is the desire underneath it? If there is a desire, for example, to feel a greater sense of self-love and self-esteem, this one's interesting because there may be some teachings, ideas, that we don't have to do anything to be lovable. We are inherently lovable. Relax into that, right? And... Do we feel like we are loving ourselves if we are languishing away in a state of not doing anything when we have the desire or energy to do? Do we feel self-love or self-esteem when instead of facing something within ourselves that we're ready to face, we avoid it? Do we feel self-love and self-esteem when we aren't taking responsibility for our deepest desires? I'm not suggesting shame or self-reprimand, but I'm thinking about what would it be like? What is the work, the Capricorn engagement, the intentionality around our relationship with ourself? So I'm thinking here of Venus, of course, and Venus Mars relating to confidence and Venus Mars Pluto relating to that like, I want this magnetic, amazing, extra powerful life. I want to be on the throne. I want to be in communion with other kings and queens. Like I want the great life. And what it's like to approach a big dream, not from a place of passivity and just hoping to receive it, hoping that the universe will just give it to us, being in a position of, in a sense, begging, hoping that it will like rain down, right? But what's the actual engagement? What are the actual tangible steps? And so to bring it back to self-esteem, I think that there's a lot of things that we desire in the external. Say we desire a relationship or our partner to be showing up in a different way, or we want something in our 
you know, we want to be seen a certain way. We want a kind of reputation. We want a certain kind of image. We can have those kind of external goals and desires. What's happening internally? What's our inner fire? How are we orienting moment to moment? And coming within and kind of cultivating that frequency is to kind of take back our projections on the outer world as though the outer world is meant to feed us and sustain us and feel into the energy that we're cultivating every moment, how we are relating to ourselves, the way we're talking to ourselves, the way that we relate to the fabric touching our skin, the way we relate to how we love and approve of ourselves every step of a process of a journey. Maybe we're not happy with where we're at, but we're not hating ourselves. We're not abandoning ourselves. We're with ourselves and we're carrying ourselves to the goal. There's a diligence and a humility, I think, of cultivating this inner fire of I've got you. I'm holding you. I'm with you. That's very Capricorn, right? And so let's even take the person who has some kind of complex, low self-worth, and so they work really hard from that place of low self-worth. Oftentimes, someone who has that kind of wiring where they're willing to really be deeply engaged at a craft, even if they heal their self-esteem and they love themselves, they will probably continue to be actively engaged in their pursuits, but it's not coming from the energetic anymore of not loving themselves and needing to earn it. It's coming from this place of, I get to do this. I get to become excellent at my craft. I get to build this dream. And so If I come back to this idea of how much we have internalized this don't work, rest, that's only true when that's what the body needs. That's only true in the sense of coming to a place of intuition with our rhythms. But part of the rhythm includes that, you know, process of the moon growing we're waking up in the morning and having this like burst of energy, the beginnings, the building, right? The rising of energy. Carpe noctum sees the night, work hard into the night on your dreams. The gods reward the dedication. I think there's something in the field Differing for everyone, depending on what is their cutting edge, where we really do want a higher standard of experience, a more beautiful, a more enlivening, a more erotic kind of life. And we're at this moment where in this stellium of Capricorn, there is energy and vitality toward the process of endeavoring, the process of climbing a mountain. Capricorn loses some of its soul when it disengages from the process and just focuses on the end result and totally compartmentalizes all the feelings and then gets to the top of the mountain and is unhappy because it's not even what they dreamed. That's different than being fully awake, alive in the sensual experience of every step of the way, approving of ourselves deeply at every marker, every check-in, even if that's hard, even if that's excruciatingly difficult because there's parts of ourselves that we really judge and don't approve of. What is the romance? Where are we falling in love with the process of having a goal? 
where do we give ourselves permission to have big dreams and come into a harmonic relationship between what is really possible for us and what we're dreaming of. Some dreams that are not realistic can be self-deprecating because we hook some quality of low self-esteem into having an impossible goal for ourselves. So we set ourselves up for failure. We can't win. And there is an inherent disapproval of the, you know, the acorn and the oak tree that we are. Like there's a sense of wanting to become a different kind of tree than we inherently have within us. And so we're disconnected. We're locked out of our own hearts and selves and aspiring towards something that we can't have. What a strange kind of self-imposed torture, right? And yet dreaming big within the range of the acorn oak tree that we are can still be wildly satisfying because there is a sense of being embodied in who exactly we are and approving of this soul mission, this avatar body that we jumped into in this lifetime that we chose and living it out to the fullest. And there's something within that that must be internally oriented in that we're not comparing ourselves to others' accomplishments or others' life journeys or others' life arcs. Sure, we can be inspired or learn things or be lit up, but there is a deeper integrity and responsibility of navigating our own path and kind of finding that, you know, and I say this not just from an abstract place, like it is part of my life work as well to fully inhabit my own being. And I know what it's like to want things that are not necessarily, you know, my life, not necessarily the way my life has been set up and the track that I'm on. But if I think into the frequency of that, you know, another person's dream that I envy, it's like what inside of me, what vulnerable part of me is actually lit up and wants something similar. But what does that look like in the context of my own being? This actually shows up too with, um, fashion and hairstyles or something where, um, I remember, you know, seeing different, all these different haircuts, like looking through magazines of hairstyles and thinking that I could just pick any one that I want and look exactly like that. But then I learn, you know, that face or like the face shape and the face structure is also part of the way that the hairstyle is so that we kind of end up choosing a hairstyle that fits the frame of our face. Therefore, not every hairstyle is going to look good on every face, right? Same with fashion. Um, A lot of clothing is modeled on particular body types and that clothing may not be as flattering to our own figure as it is on the models. Yet to find the clothing that actually matches with our own frame, we end up feeling beautiful, striking, right? And so I think similarly, when it comes to having a big dream, does it fit the frame? Does it fit the context? Does it fit the promise of who we are? And I think coming back to this place of being a fire tender, being a priestess, being devoted to a frequency, how deeply devoted are we to ourselves? How in love are we with ourselves? Are we moving toward that? And so I've been speaking a little bit of the angst 
in terms of having the desire and all of this. But let's talk about some of the effulgent kind of fruition experiences. These are the ways that for any of us who have put in labor, who have put in maybe years of engagement on something that we started out awkward, we started out unsure of ourselves, we started out not really having a lot of coordination or skill, but we're years into the process and we're really good at it. And we're seeing the rewards of that. We are seeing the reflection of our engagement show up as material success. Capricorn is so much about success and it is about understanding the reality, the parameters of reality enough to be able to play the game and create something within the matrix, right? And so this isn't just the conventional matrix. It could be the matrix of your own you know, energetic system. It could be the matrix of your understanding of, you know, a community that you exist within, or maybe a community or an ecosystem that you're creating, right? Like one of my favorite teachings when I was studying astrology with Ari Moshe, who's my first astrology teacher, he talked about how trees, um, attract, you know, all of these life forms like animals and bugs and whatnot. And once the tree comes into being, it's like the community and ecosystem materializes around it. So when we show up with our creativity, when we show up manifesting who we are, we create a culture around us. So part of the kind of erotic magic and fruition of this current moment could be feeling the um, rewards of where we have put in a lot of effort and engagement over time, where we have been sensitive enough to the reality to be and like humble enough to notice when things don't work and adjust or alternately also know when it's worth dealing with the resistance and um, staying the course with patience, knowing that eventually we'll see the return, right? And the kind of wisdom path of discerning the difference between the two of those things. But in this space of being in this fullness of celebration of who we are and how far we've come, feeling into our magnetic field, right? And how we become that fire that other people are attracted to. And herein, there's something about boundaries. I recently got really inspired by this. I went to Ari Felix, Saltwater Stars, Valentine's Day talk about relationship anarchy. And Ari mentioned how when you show up in the world as a very present person, the way that you bring that presence to encounters with other people can really surprise or bring up a lot for others because they're not used to being met with that much presence. And so sometimes if they really feel in need of that, you know, or they think that it's romantic when you're just being friendly, they might latch on or they may get, um, kind of like threatened by it or have some kind of like boundaried response to it. And Ari was speaking of that when you show up with this kind of presence, this kind of um, quality, you're learning about your sovereignty. And I find that this actually comes up. Um, a lot of women have the fear of being um, in touch with their kind of Eros energy in terms of how they, you know, wear it on their person being in touch with that, like, yeah, erotic frequency because they're afraid of the attention that it will garner. And so there is this kind of staying small for fear of then being faced with situations of having other people be attracted to them. And there's a process, um, alternately, some people, you know, can't help themselves. They have just a natural like 
they are showing up as a very erotic being and they've had plenty of opportunities to learn how to wield that and have boundaries around it. So having both the kind of finesse of knowing how to flirt and create connection and create fire with another and create invitation or kind of escalate the intimacy at will, as well as the capacity to exit situations at will. And with grace, even if it was so nice talking to you and walk away, right? Like how we can be in relationship with being a notable fire that people are attracted to. They're attracted to our being, our fashion, our energy, our body of work. And we know how to embody that in the world as someone who's visible, as someone who has a, you know, we think of Capricorn or like 10th house, it can be like reputation. Um, And that might be something that, you know, involves people are talking about you, you have a reputation. It could also be how you're just visible in a space. People know that you exist. People feel the frequency that you're bringing. And do you have the skill sets? Have you practiced? Have you taken deep responsibility for your magic and your magic's influence on a space? I want to read another quote from Bachelard about this phenomenon of not being able to approach fire objectively. He is presenting this challenge with approaching fire, which is that when we stare into the fire, our mind is somehow warped. Right. So if you think about this in terms of if you've ever stared into a fire, didn't your consciousness change? He says, we are going to study a problem that no one has managed to approach objectively, one in which the initial charm of the object is so strong that it still has the power to warp the minds of the clearest thinkers and to keep bringing them back to the poetic fold in which dreams replace thought and poems conceal theorems. The problem is the psychological problem posed by our convictions about fire. It seems to me so definitely psychological in nature that I do not hesitate to speak of a psychoanalysis of fire. The object is so strong that it still has the power to warp the minds of the clearest thinkers and to keep bringing them back to the poetic fold in which dreams replace thought and poems conceal theorems. And so this is kind of the priestess, right? Like the way that she embodies energy in a space, the frequency that she has cultivated and created a portal to changes the energy of the room. The reason for her gatekeeping is that people can either be willing to be transformed and to be overcome and to feel that they are sovereign beings who have choice around you know, being in relationship with their desire or people can get really twisted around it. You know, this goes back to like, um, earlier kind of like patriarchal patterns of like the, the controlling of women because they are so sexually attractive and they are making men lose their minds or something. And the sense of the um, the unwillingness to be moved by the goddess, the desire to then control or hurt or put in a box the goddess because of her transformative powers to warp the mind. And so when we are in really deep touch with our purpose, with our medicine, with our frequency, with that which we're devoted to, it does create a field of allurement and also freaks out certain people that aren't, you know, might be attracted to the frequency, but not okay with it, right? Like this, um, an energy that I can relate to with it is when someone's attracted to me because I'm magical, but is not in approval in themselves of magic. 
like they want to kind of debate with me about this like hyper rationalist kind of like vision of reality in which the world is not ensouled, that everything is kind of um, based on chemicals and, you know, the material realm. And when this type of person is so fucking interested in talking to me, like so just enamored, like I can feel their kind of like glow about them, but they want to invalidate the existence of magic. It's a strange, distorted, like they're twisted by the flame, right? That I'm throwing down and I do not need to interact with them. It doesn't go well for me. They can be at a distance. I don't care if they like read my writing and whatever, or like listen to the podcast. I don't feel like I have a lot of that kind of energy hanging around. Um, but it's the sense of like, if you're attracted to something, but you want to snuff out its flame or change it because the flame threatens you, like that's some twisted energy. <laughs> and that can come up with Vesta. And part of the gatekeeping is the development of boundaries where we can see this person can't deal with me. This person's like not on my level, not in my frequency, but they still want something from me and I am not going to give it. There's a process too of even neutralizing the charge around it where for as long as I still had the kind of desire to explain myself or prove that magic was real, it kind of put me in a um, attractive magnetic relationship with that kind of person. When I just stopped being interested, when I stopped feeding my energy to it, people started leaving me alone in that way. And so there are subtle energetics of knowing, you know, when relationship dynamics feel weird or extractive or just like unconscious, how we navigate having boundaries, whether those boundaries are things that we um, implement relationally and even speak to, or whether it's an energetic process of divesting our own energetic hooks and cords to those kinds of situations. And so a few final thoughts about this um, stellium, Mars, Venus, Pluto, and Vesta, and Capricorn. There is something here, I think, about a desire for this deeper connection with ourselves and with spirit, feeling deeply satisfied and fulfilled in our endeavors and our capacity to be effectual and successful, and having the fire build within us to pursue those goals instead of just hoping that they'll happen or drop upon us without our engagement. And then relationally, I think there's also a desire for experiences that feel um, exciting, that feel like they are um, up to a standard that is in integrity with our desires. So not settling not settling for mediocrity or the mundane, right? And so I think that this can even happen in simple social dynamics where we show up in a more autopilot or disengaged way because we're just not, we're not like turned on. And I don't mean that as in like aroused, but we're just like, we're not on, right? And that's fine if we, we don't have to be on all the time, but noticing where that type of autopilot disengagement doesn't actually bring a lot of fire to the field. What's it like to be curious and engaged with the people around us and bring our actual selves, our uniqueness, our magic into the social environment and see who's playing at that level with us? Capricorn is a rarefied space, right? It is at the top of the mountain. Only the people who have climbed to those certain levels uh, will be adept to meet us in that frequency. Or it sets up a dynamic of, say, um, guiding or teaching or leading, right? Which is fair, too. That is also part of the social space. It's part of the... Um, 
the teaching world. And however, when it comes to something, well, no, let's stay with that. So when it comes to seeing that someone has knowledge that you want to partake in, there's a way to respect our teachers, right? Like Vesta, sacred space. Like how do we show up in right relationship where we respect and honor our teachers and we're not trying to take and extract from them? How do we show up in right relationship with the people that we are guiding or teaching? Whether or not we are officially a teacher, right? Knowing when we are choosing to take on that role, what is our relationship with that? What are the boundaries? What are the ethics of that space? And sometimes there's situations where it's not appropriate to be a teacher, right? Like if you are dating people and you're constantly teaching them how to date you and you don't feel met <laughs> because you're in the role of teaching where you actually want to be um, on a more reciprocal level. And so where do we get into this space where we are settling for something that's less than our standard, say in our work life too, like we're not um, having a good relationship with our work, we don't feel valued, we're not bringing our, um, our dreams or skill sets to the table, right? And then also in terms of meeting new people or in our existing relationships, just what it means to hold a standard or hold a frequency, not make other people wrong or demonize people for not being part of that frequency, but starting to create the space to call in a similar frequency and not be overly available for things which feel like a compromise. This could even go for the ways that we are engaging time, another Capricorn theme. One thing that I'm like sensitive to is if I'm spending my time in a state of disengagement or numbing, which sometimes I do because I'm at my energetic range and it's time to just consume a Netflix series, right? And sometimes that feels so good and it's so nourishing and I'm in connection with myself. Other times it's just me numbing and what would it be like instead to journal or to put on music and have an embodiment practice or um, start to move energy by, say, cleaning something in my apartment that I've left messy? Um, what does it mean to become more of an artist with the time and space in which I'm inhabited in, the very reality that I'm in? How am I cultivating a temple-like or magical frequency in the moment, calling myself up to the place of excellence that I have the capacity for? How am I turning something mundane and boring or not very memorable into something more ceremonial and fantastic, right? So thinking about this sense of so much passion available in the field right now with Mars and Venus together next to Pluto, next to Vesta, and the sense that there's something about our engagement, work ethic, willingness to put forth effort and endeavor, and responsibility in relationship with our desire, and right relationship with our desire within ourselves, right relationship within ourselves, right relationship with other people in the field, how we navigate boundaries, how we navigate interest and how we navigate disinterest and not being, you know, having a no, um, how we can do that in an increasingly graceful, you know, think about Capricorn as like a very graceful and benevolent leader king queen kind of energy like there's profound grace capable here sometimes when we're navigating boundaries and the creation of boundaries we can be really messy about them at first um like when i was younger um like a teenager sometimes there were 
guys that I was talking to and if I got, you know, upset at them and didn't want to talk to them anymore and try to disengage, but they kept talking to me, um, which in a sense was like them not listening to my boundary, right? I would get very extreme, uh, tell them to never talk to me again, tell them that I would call the cops on them, like just get into this space or, you know, write someone a letter of like, literally never talk to me again and like have some kind of like magical threat (laughs) of like, just don't fucking talk to me. And that level of like roaring at people and having to like scream and like, kind of like get the fuck away from me. Like I don't have to do that anymore. It's very rare that that kind of fierceness is required from me because there's a different subtlety by which I've managed to hold boundaries. And so I don't blame my past version of myself for that type of expression. That was what I had access to before I figured out what energetic patterns I was in, how I was hooked into those types of people and cut those cords within myself. So knowing too, that when we are in that state of kind of angst of like, I'm not in approval of this in myself, or I'm not in approval of this relational dynamic, that the process of creating harmony in those contested situations can feel messy and unskillful at first. But if we follow a deeper curiosity there of like, what do I really desire? What is the frequency of the temple of my life? And how do I have more graceful boundaries, firm, graceful, true, spine, How can this environment, this life that I'm cultivating, become increasingly skillful and magnetic and aligned and attuned? So I'll stop this transmission here. Thank you for listening. A great way to stay in touch with me is to be on my mailing list. I send the forecasts um, every week to the mailing list as well as some exclusive content And um, it's a great way to know about upcoming courses when my books are open. My astrology reading books are currently open. They weren't open a lot throughout 2021, um, but they are open currently. So you can find the link in the notes to book a reading with me. Meteorite, a year long course that I'm offering and it's it's a program. It's like a think tank, a think tank, a container, kind of like a coaching space um, that is in service to astrological embodiment, voice and craft. This is an advanced program open to alumni of the evolutionary astrology intensive, and it features individuals coming up with a project, the scope of which is their own design, a project meant to be an initiation, a project that serves your desire. So if you're wanting to deepen your professionalism with astrology, it may be a kind of professional up level that your project is um, an embodiment of. If you are seeking to develop a part of yourself in relationship to your natal chart and you want to kind of have a personal breakthrough, your project could be designed around that. Projects can be academic, creative, etc. And through this course, <laughs> I... <laughs> My phone just like started playing a video of my friends and I going out in Miami. So silly. Um, It's such a Venus Mars energy just showing up. But um, in Meteorite, we'll be covering a lot of new um, new ground. But one of the things, one of the meditations that will be holding us for the year is the mysteries of the fixed signs, Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius. The interconnections between these signs um, have fascinated me for years. They're part of my conception of abundance and wealth, um, both as a mindset and an actual um, achievement. And it's also related to things around like creative mastery, um, having having a mapping of how we can create lasting change or work with our intentions and manifest how we can shake loose and kind of digest and move stagnant energies or traumas or paradigmatic blocks. The fixed signs relate to energies that are, you know, fixed. They're kind of stuck in place. And I see those blockages as, you know, what's our literacy in terms of moving blocks? The fixed signs teach me that. 
And then when those blocks are moved, that kind of dense, compact energy, it's kind of like breaking up a glow stick or something where you through breaking up that stagnant and stuck energy, that aliveness, that vitality, that energy can circulate more freely and be invested more creatively. So it's like what happens when we stop feeding some addiction, right? Or something petty or like a a tired neural pathway and reclaim that energy for something more creative, something more truly erotic to us. So um, I'm really excited about what's brewing around that. Um, the group field is also so amazing. We had um, just such a magical kind of sparkling energy around creativity. The last time this course ran, um, students created like research offerings where they were, you know, trading readings. We were talking about our transits together as a group. Um, it's truly a glittering salon. So if you've studied with me before, I welcome you to um, send in an application. The link is in the notes. I'm looking for people that are excited about deepening their personal relationship with astrology and embodying their craft deeper in the next year. And then the Evolutionary Astrology Intensive is also open for enrollment. We're beginning again May 2nd. This will be the 10th run of this course. Um, it is a beloved course. You can see on the course page kind of student experiences of you know how this course reached people. I teach this uh, form of astrology, evolutionary astrology, which is about the evolutionary journey of the soul in this spirit of the love of wisdom. I see evolutionary astrology as a wisdom school. And so as we go through the foundational concepts, it is enchanting the whole way through because we're getting into kind of the mysteries of the human experience through the archetypes. Um, and so you'll find parts of your life experience and parts of yourself in all of the signs and all of the planets. And then in starting to build this deeper rapport with all of the archetypes, it literally enchants our lives. Um, in addition to this, we learn how to read the chart from the perspective of a multi-lifetime journey. So you gain an actual language for contemplating the question of what your soul has been up to in prior lifetimes. What's your dharma in this lifetime? And it just adds this really deep layer of soul making. It's been an unrelenting adventure in my life to speak this language and to kind of understand my life through this lens. I understand my life through multiple lenses, of course. Uh, astrology, it's important for me to keep it interdisciplinary, but evolutionary astrology has been one of the most opening bodies of knowledge that has connected me to so much richness in this life. Um, so I absolutely love teaching this course and I invite you if you like these transmissions, if you connect with the forecasts, if you're wanting to become closer to astrology, like kind of get astrology or be able to synthesize astrological information more intuitively, more fluidly, um, I invite you to this course as well. The link to enroll and learn more is in the notes too.